Quick note to listeners before we begin, we recorded this conversation on Tuesday, July 26th. The next day, Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, and Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, announced that they'd reached an agreement on a big budget bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, that will, among other things, allocate hundreds of billions of dollars to clean energy projects and development. As you'll hear, much of the conversation was premised on the widespread belief that Manchin had vetoed all of that proposed spending. And that's the news business for you. But the bigger picture takeaways are all, I think, still pretty relevant. So we decided to put it out there anyhow, kind of like an artifact frozen in amber. Please enjoy. Hi, and welcome to Positively Dreadful with me, your host, Brian Boitler. So as you know, this is a show about trying to grasp and hopefully overcome a variety of alarming social trends. And you can't host a show on that theme without eventually wrestling with climate change. I think in a lot of ways, climate is the trend for us to cover. The stakes are global and enormous. Addressing it in a serious way is just a harrowingly complex political and technological challenge. And unlike a lot of the things we've already discussed or will discuss in the future, the climate crisis isn't new. I've known about climate change since I was a child. I learned the geophysics of climate change as an undergraduate in college. Climate has been on the national agenda my entire professional life. I remember seeing an inconvenient truth in theaters. I remember when mainstream Republicans at least genuflected towards the idea that the federal government should institute policies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I've covered all of the various 10-year goals for keeping atmospheric carbon below 350 parts per million, then 450. And I remember settling into this state of kind of permanent disquiet about climate change in about 2010, when the Democrats' climate change agenda unraveled, and the House Democrats who went out on a limb to pass what we called the Waxman-Markey bill got wiped out in the midterms. So for the past decade plus now, climate has kind of bubbled up and bubbled down as a focal point of federal action. Even before Waxman-Markey, President Obama's Recovery Act earmarked tens of billions of dollars for cleaner energy. And the payoff for that spending on a per-dollar basis has been substantial. It's just not nearly enough. Then after Waxman-Markey failed, the Obama administration promulgated the Clean Power Plan, which would have set state-level emission caps and then let states sort out how to meet them. But of course, right-wing judges blocked that plan, and then Donald Trump just rescinded it. After Trump, though, Biden got elected with the trifecta, and for a few months, Democrats talked about enacting a clean electricity plan, which would have used financial carrots and sticks to get utilities to switch to renewable sources of power. Then Joe Manchin killed that idea. But when he did, he promised to support a bunch of direct clean energy spending instead. Then more recently, he reneged on that promise too. And so now we're in this liminal phase between wondering if maybe Senate Democrats can breathe some life back into their climate agenda, or if President Biden might have to take matters into his own hands and declare a climate emergency. So let me be the first to admit that in all this, over these many years of ups and downs, I've grown pretty jaundiced about the climate issue. And by no coincidence, I'm also just less steeped in the ins and outs of the issue than I used to be. Way back when all that stuff was happening in the Obama era, I used to be able to cite chapter and verse about various carbon tax and cap and trade bills circulating in Congress and what the latest IPCC report said. And I just generally felt I was up to speed on current activist and scientific and political thought about where things stood on the issue. Today, I can't 
even really begin to say how much good declaring a climate emergency would do or how it compares to the legislative ideas Joe Manchin killed or how close any of those ideas would bring us to Biden's long-term emissions goals. But as luck would have it, two of my colleagues remain immersed in all of this stuff, and I'm going to count on them to help bring me back up to speed. So please welcome the hosts of Crooked Media's very own hot take, Mary Anais Hegler and Amy Westervelt. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Hi. Hi. Okay. Um, so before we get to um, all the bullshit, uh, can, can one of you walk <laughs> me through what Democrats were trying to do with the climate spending provisions of the sort of second Build Back Better bill that they've been trying to put together for the last year or so? Is it the second or the third, Amy? Oh. <laughs> Amy's like the bro- Amy's the like real brain on this stuff. So. Yeah, it the the sort of simplest way to put it is just that they figured that they couldn't get any of the sticks passed, and mm-hmm. so they were trying to unlock spending for increased manufacturing of solar heat pumps and uh, wind offshore wind in particular. So honestly, I don't, I don't really understand why that wouldn't, you know, work for, for mansion. <laughs> um, except, except that, you know, for all of the, the talk that the fossil fuel industry trots out about how it's totally embracing a clean energy transition, it mm-hmm. is, yeah. in fact, not. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was really just, like, all incentives, no regulation, and yet still, which is what he said was, you know, what it would take to get him to get on board with climate policy, and yet he's still saying no, although it's this weird, like, we can revisit it in September if inflation right. is down thing. Um, so, Yeah. He likes to keep us guessing that mansion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he pulled the rug out from under the spending. Uh, but then as you yeah. suggested, he kind of at least pretended that maybe if inflation isn't so bad in July, then he might right. warm back up to it, right? Again, but like I, I just want to make really clear to people that there was nothing in these proposals that would have made inflation worse. That would contrary, have made right? gas prices worse or electricity prices worse. Yeah, in fact, it would. It's the opposite. Like right. this spending would have actually made people's electricity bills cheaper. Um, it would have had zero impact on gas prices whatsoever. So the idea that he's like, oh, no, we can't because of inflation doesn't make any sense at all. But yet, like, it's kind of being just unquestioned in a lot of places. So, yeah, that's bullshit. Yeah, you got to do some <laughs> bootstrapping to even to even sort of begin to game out where we're going from here, right? You have to yeah. just set aside the fact that, that Manchin's explanation of why he pulled the rug out from under all this spending – uh, mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. And if you just assume that he just doesn't get it um, and really will change his mind if the inflation numbers come out better in July than in June, then you have to wonder, okay, like maybe it makes sense to wait him out a little bit. But then mm-hmm. President Biden basically seemed to say, all right, I, I, I'm done with this guy. Let's just move yeah. ahead without letting him waste more of our time and pass the basically the healthcare-centered uh, provisions of what's left of Build Back Better um, on their own, right. and 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 stop playing around. I mean, am I right to think that those spending provisions are are really dead for this Congress? With Biden now saying, "I don't want to, I don't want to 
negotiate with this guy anymore. I don't think Chuck Schumer should negotiate with him anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think they're dead from a from a policy perspective. I think that's why you're starting to see more and more of this climate emergency talk bubbling up because there's some slim chance that we could recover some of that funding via the declaration of a climate emergency, which would unlock the Defense Production Act budget, but also potentially tap into some federal procurement budget stuff. Um, so, so yeah. But, I mean, I think it's important for people to remember that when Build Back Better first came about, right, it was $555 billion worth of climate spending. And now, and like, even this most recent proposal is, like, so, like, that, no one thought that was enough, this most recent proposal is way less than that. And then now, you know, we're down to to Biden announcing, you know, a few billion dollars for a couple of specific programs um, this week, I think on Wednesday or last week. Um, so, you know, I think as far as like passing big climate policy um, or big, you know, spending proposals, yeah, I think it's dead. I think it's been dead for a while. Yeah. I mean, the there was, um, I don't know how many there were, a few dozen Senate staffers, I think, who were parking yeah. themselves outside of Chuck Schumer's office saying, you know, continue negotiating. Don't put a bill on the, on the floor that basically uses up our authority under the Budget Act to pass a bill uh, without a filibuster, without giving, like, the climate provisions of that bill one more chance. Um, mm. And- you know, I I strongly sympathize with with those staffers, but I was also what I thought when I saw them doing that is if if the members that they worked for thought that Chuck Schumer had made some miscalculation and that there was still a chance of of getting Biden aboard for a few hundred billion dollars in climate spending, then they could really put the brakes on all this, right? Like they could say, we're, "You you're screwing this up. We need to give you guys two more weeks to." come to a deal on this. And um, the fact that their members, the, the actual senators that these staffers work for, don't see it that way um, makes me think that, you know, Chuck Schumer's probably right, that that he's wasted over a year trying to get Joe Manchin, pin Joe Manchin down on anything that he, you know, can trust him to support. And he's right to conclude that that means that Joe Manchin was never really there for any any substantial amount of climate mitigation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think all signs point to Joe Manchin is not that into climate policy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, I mean, he is into climate policy that favors the fossil fuel industry, which is a choice. You know, like, that's mm-hmm. not, not a climate policy. That is pouring fuel on the fire. He has the option to either do that or not, and he continuously chooses to, to do it. So, I don't know. I don't get him. <laughs> Neither do I. Neither do I. But so the backup plan, given Joe Manchin, is for is for President Biden to declare climate a national emergency. If you if you take a maximal view of his legitimate powers, what would that unlock? Like, what could be policy under national emergency that isn't policy now? Yeah, I think it 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 kind of gets divided into two areas. One would enable him to do more to shut down fossil fuel production. The other would enable him to do more to fund 
clean energy, right? Mm -hmm. So, and personally, I think just sort of reading the tea leaves that like of these powers that he could unlock by declaring a climate emergency, I don't get the sense that there's a lot of appetite for engaging with the ones that shut down fossil fuel production. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it's going to be all spend, you know, it's going to be the Defense Production Act, which that's only $544 million, but Agencies can kick in money towards that. So that budget could grow. Like if the EPA says we want to add some of our budget into this, right? Private sector can partner with the government on on DPA stuff. So like if there are tech companies that want to, you know, throw in with the government on spurring more solar, for example, that's something that could happen. There's also, you know, the federal procurement budget, which could um, swing more towards clean energy. I also think I just, there was a report from the Center for Biological Diversity that pointed out um, that he could use the Stafford Act um, to, to basically like force FEMA to look at like building resiliency when they're dealing with uh, kind of post-disaster relief stuff. So right now the way it's set up, FEMA has to build things back the way they were, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> which, which in many cases was problematic or is, you know, reliant on fossil fuels itself. So kind of exacerbates the problem in this way. Mm-hmm. So there's, um, there's potential there as well. On the ban side, like, he could reinstate the crude oil export ban. He could reinstate the ban on on federal leasing for oil and gas drilling. He could ban offshore drilling. Those are all things that could happen. He could also, you know, like, he could restrict international trade and private investment in fossil fuels. So, you know, the United States invests in fossil fuel development outside of the U.S. as well. Um, That's something that he could put a stop to. But... I think that those are the things that are probably the least likely, not just because U.S. oil companies don't like them, but because of everything that's happening with Russia, Ukraine, and gas mm-hmm. prices right now. Um, it's yeah. just, it's not going to be, I just don't see the appetite for that. Yeah. Not, well, so I'm, I'm wondering, do we think he should do it, like appetite or not? Like, yeah. setting aside the, the pro-production stuff that you said, the, the, there's the anti-extraction provisions, like... I don't want to, I don't know how to say this without sounding like a pill but we we just lived through this months long national nationwide media freak out about the price of gas going up a couple bucks a gallon and right. it doesn't leave me with the sense that if Biden instituted those policies under national emergency and then gas prices bounced back up that it would last or that everything would work out okay beyond, you know, a couple months before they cried uncle and undid them all. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, well, there's two problems there, right? One is that the media absolutely shit the bed on handling (laughs) gas prices and like being able just like being knowledgeable enough about how gas pricing works to push Mm -hmm. back on you know the api was right out there day one even like actually before russia invaded ukraine the american petroleum institute and their talking heads were making the rounds of of the cable news shows because gas prices were already starting to to go up just with like the general saber rattling in russia so The media absolutely seeded that talking point and the idea that like what Biden was that, you know, somehow 
Biden's climate policies were to blame for increased gas prices, that just kept getting repeated over and over again without question. Um, It was not true in any way. I was honestly like my feeling at that point was like, I wish it was Biden's climate policies that were doing this. (laughs) So in some ways, I'm like, well, fuck it. If he's going to get blamed for climate policy driving up gas prices, fucking institute climate policy that drives up gas prices, man. Go for it. It's like when it's like when Texas, you know, having having opted out of being part of, you know, a multi-state grid, you know, had one freak snowstorm and it destroyed uh you know, yes. power across all, and then they were like, "This is the Green New Deal's fault." <laughs> right? Uh, like, like right. they they just have no shame about it. So they're you know they're going to say whatever, and right. you can at least count on the media to um, pretend to take it seriously as like right. a partial explanation. So that's like a yeah. I I generally think that being scared of how Republicans at least are going to frame what you do as a policy matter is becoming less and less and less of a, of a valid concern because they're just going to say right. what they want anyway. What do you think, Mary? Should he, should he just do a kitchen sink thing if he declares a national emergency and ban as much extraction as, as he can or? Yes. I know that um, that might seem really extreme if you look at what happened with, you know, what you guys were just saying about the gas prices. But if you look at the actual climate math, Doing Mm -hmm. anything else is Mm -hmm. immoral. It is insane. And I think we've passed the point of having a painless transition. The best we can hope for is a just transition. Um, And, you know, just changes with the context, I suppose, because there's no way to do this with no suffering. There isn't. There's already so much suffering from climate change. And if this is what we're feeling today, you know, we're not suffering today from the emissions that went out last year. That's still to come. So yeah. it's just, I, I don't understand how you can look at the at the numbers in front of us, at the projections in front of us, and even the reality that we're living right now. We're effectively on a different planet than the one I was born with, born on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't see where the choice is here. Yes, it's going to hurt. And I just, I want us to, you know, I watched um, Biden's speech last week, and he talked about this is the biggest ever investment in wind energy. This is the biggest ever in this. This is the biggest ever in that. And while that might be true, the bar is really low when it comes to climate politics. And the stakes are super, super high. They're higher than anything I think has ever happened in human history. So just because you spent more than any other president is not exactly something to gloat about. It's more like something to indict the previous presidents. So yes, yeah, I think um, I think what's important for people to get about this is that like there's there's a really key way in which climate is different from every other political issue, and that is that if we fuck it up, we can't get it back. Like if you fuck up healthcare, you can fix it in ten years. You can you know if you fuck up monetary policy and. Um, inflation goes haywire and the economy tanks for a while. Like, like we already know because we've seen it throughout history that that can that can bounce back. There's different, you know, like different policy in the next administration can change it. We don't have that luxury on climate. Yeah. It's just it's just very very different from every other political issue. And that's why it's so frustrating. And we talk about this all the time. Like it's so frustrating when people talk about climate the same 
like as this political football issue, the same way that they do with so many other issues. It's like, yeah, but it's not the same thing. Like the, (laughs) like our, our policies don't actually change how the whole thing happens. Right. Like, yeah. Uh, we don't actually have that much control. Like it's happening and we're treating it like, you know, somehow we have the ability to, to determine whether a hurricane is intense or not. You know what I mean? And it's just, it's just not, it's not that. So, so yeah, I I agree with Mary. I think he absolutely should do. And I, and, and even on the political side, it's like, look, he's going to get blamed for whatever, no matter what anyway. So why not do the right thing? I mean, girl, they're blaming the Green New Deal for what happened in Sri Lanka. So, it's true. It's true. You know, it's, I had missed that. I had missed that. I remember yeah. the Texas thing. What's yeah, the, no. how, how is the Green New Deal to blame for what's happening in Sri Lanka? Magic. I mean, rather than um, just climate change. but No, magic. Really, it's this. There's no, they don't even bother to say, try to try to even find a kernel of. Uh, his argument is that you know people who, got upset because there were Green New Deal like policies implemented in Sri Lanka and the people revolted mm-hmm. and that's what would happen if who we did this? it here. Tucker Carlson. Oh my God. Oh yeah. God. I'm, yeah. I'm, Mary, I am stupider for knowing that. I think. <laughs> yeah, that, me too. We all are. Yeah. But to go yeah. back to what Amy was saying earlier, I think that you know when we think about all of these other other issues, they're all based on these man-made systems like economics, even you know white supremacy mm. or like our politics. All of those things are man-made concepts, whereas the ecosystems of the planet were not man-made. <laughs> you right. break those, there's no way to fix that, right? Like yeah. every like. With climate change, the more you let it run out of control, the more you are ensuring suffering in the future, not just today. So, like, you do something now that causes suffering today, you can end that suffering tomorrow. With climate change, that's not quite the case. Um, At the same time, though, I want to be very, very clear for anyone listening that if you are hearing this and you're thinking, like, all is lost and there's no point in doing anything, I have great news for you, that day is never coming in your lifetime. There's never going yeah. to be a day in which there is nothing you can do. So don't don't even right. worry about that. I actually want to get into that closer to the end. Like for a long time, I think the climate issue got portrayed as one where past a certain point, you're just fucked. And so there's no point in even mm-hmm. trying anymore. And right. I, I think that that was almost just like an accident of rhetoric that people didn't even like think through going back 15 or 20 years. Uh, yeah. But that, but that you know, as people, A, as like our emissions curve has changed and B, as we've kind of gotten our heads around what the future is going to look like, every negative increment of greenhouse gas that doesn't go into the atmosphere is a slightly less hopeless future. And so you just want to try yeah. to pile those up, right? Yeah. Every like percentage of a degree matters. You know, like people... I, like, I saw a lot of people kind of being like, oh, 1.5 is dead, so let's just try for two. And I'm like, whoa, easy. Pump the brakes, man. There's, like, a whole half a degree in there that doesn't necessarily right. need to be. You know what I mean? Like, it's, like, actually, like, 0.1 of a degree is is a very meaningful savings um, where warming is concerned. So, like, so, yeah, I think it's important that people understand that there's there is – that, yeah, like Mary said, in our lifetimes, there will always be something that we can do to make it like 
at least slightly less bad. So let's put a pin in that for a second. Um, I, I think as I was prepping for this conversation, I talked myself into agreeing with you guys that um, Biden should <laughs> just put everything into the climate emergency and and throw it at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. But my, my initial inclination was based on back when Congress would debate cap and trade and carbon tax policies, the idea was always to pair a reduction in emissions with new money coming into the government, right? Mm-hmm. Ta- carbon tax revenue or revenue from the from the sale and, and purchase of emissions Credits. permits under under a cap and cap and trade system, right? Bring that money mm-hmm. into the government and then spend it um, in a progressive way on people whose energy costs were going to go up, um, so that on you know on net most people would be better off uh, financially. Right. When you're when you're talking about just basically saying no, this is going to stay in the ground and prices are going to rise, and that's the policy, you don't get the the back half of the equation where you, you remit some of that money back to back to poor people, basically. Um, and so my my initial thought was this is just going to make people who are most affected by climate change also most affected by the financial cost of addressing it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I still have that concern. So I'm wondering what you guys think about that aspect of the of the sort of declare a climate emergency plan. Yeah. Well, I think, um, A, it, it can't happen in, in isolation. Um, I don't, I think there's, there's no reason that, you know, in fact, I think even in the, the announcement that Biden made last week, he included some money for uh, people to offset the cost of, of electricity, right? I, I, mm-hmm. I see no reason why that can't be included. Also, the um, the Stafford Act spending is very, like, that would actually be very, very targeted to climate vulnerable communities. So very much like climate justice communities that are um, struggling to deal with disasters. So it would be um, helping, helping to helping people to build the kind of resilience that makes the impact of those extreme weather events less severe. So that's like, you know, insulating people's houses better, helping to rebuild um, in places where they're not as impacted by extreme weather events, um, improving access to clean water, improving access to electricity, like a lot of things that would actually help people on, on the whole. Um, so yeah, I think there's a couple of, there's those two things, but I also like, I also feel like, you know, a hundred percent, I think in order to work there, it needs to be a just transition and we need to be thinking about, you know, holistically how this impacts people. I think that the government needs to be thinking about that across the board. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, well, like, we have a bunch of, of other types of policies that also don't give a shit about poor people or labor <laughs> or working class families or, you know what I mean? And it's yeah. like, all right, yeah, let's talk about this, but let's talk about it like across the government, not yeah. just as something that comes up whenever you try to do climate policy. You know what right. I mean? Right. Like, I guess, you know, as if, if the background condition for, for this, for, the dilemma we're talking about was that Democrats had had 
charged through the gate after taking over last January and had raised the minimum wage and had made the child tax credit permanent and had right. lowered pre- right. prescription drugs and all this, you know, basically downward redistribution of money. So, so poor and working class people were just doing a lot better uh, than they had yeah. been. And then you say, okay, look, like we can't get Manchin's vote for the, the the better way to do this. So we're just going to sort of do it in this command and control way. And, and we're going to say no more drilling. And, you know, we don't know what the effect on prices is going to be, but they're going to go. But we, you know, overall, the, your picture's better because of the other things we did. Like I, right. that would, it would feel more justified to me, but so much of the agenda just fell by the wayside. Um, and then there was this, yeah. you know, in addition to the gas price freak out, yet just the generalized inflation freak out, um, mm-hmm. and you know, to so the thought of Biden just announcing this, it goes into effect, prices yeah. start to go up, and there's no safety net. Well, it makes me think, though, like, I wonder if, you know, um, I I do wonder if as part of declaring a climate emergency, and I don't know the answer to this, I'm kind of throwing it out to you guys to see what you think. But as part of it, could he not also, you know, like, create the same kinds of of payments that were created to help families during COVID? Like, if Mm. it's an emergency, it's an emergency, right? Why couldn't there be some kind of you know, relief payments to, to, to families, which also actually brings me to another thing that I think has been woefully kind of ignored in all these conversations, which is the ability that the Fed has already to do a whole bunch of things that would help on climate, not, not necessarily like handing out money to families, although maybe, but like, (laughs) you know, they could, they could like stop giving loans to banks that invest in fossil fuel projects, for example, (laughs) you know, or like there's, I don't know. I just, I feel like um, there are ways that the, that the Fed could help that, are both sort of like untouchable by the Supreme Court and that, you know, Congress might squawk about, but they can't really do anything because they've already designated a bunch of powers to the Fed. So anyway, just just something to think about on the, the monetary policy. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I honestly I honestly don't know what like what the law says about what a what a national emergency allows the president to do or not do yeah. uh, with, with with money. I mean, like, I you know, most of the money that went out in the COVID emergency was was appropriated by Congress and it was trillions of dollars. And so there was no question about, about Trump's and then Biden's authority to, to spend that money. You know, as long as there's some colorable legal authority to pair um, anti-extraction policies with money for people, like I would say it should go in there. And this is sort of how I ended up talking myself into the idea that, this should be the farthest reaching national emergency. He, he has a good faith reason to believe is legal, right? Right. Like I think here's here's where I landed. My very strong suspicion is that no matter what Biden does, Republicans are going to go find a federal judge in Texas. Um, oh, of course. To, to, to issue and they're that judge is going to issue a nationwide injunction against yeah. the emergency, um, and then that's probably going to go to the Supreme Court, and we should expect yeah. that in. Next year, the year after, the Supreme Court will, on a five-four six-three basis, make up some reason to say that the emergency declaration is invalid, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's where we're headed, inevitably, then I think it just makes sense. What I would like to see is for Biden to, to do the kitchen sink approach, 
But that when he and then when he announces it, he should get out ahead of the judges and just say, "Look, we're we're going to try this and we're going to try that, but we expect Republicans to find a judge who's going to who's going to stop us." Kind of like how he, you know, in the lead up to the invasion of Ukraine, he would go on TV and talk about what the Russian military was up to is sort of a way to uh, get ahead of them and, um, you know, make sure everyone knew all of their pretexts for the war were bullshit. That he could, yeah. he, could, he could do a version of that for the inevitable federal judicial ruling that his climate change emergency can't be implemented. Right. And that that could then be part of, like, bringing the whole Democratic Party along um, into a, you know, a more frontal political fight against the court, you know, just in general. Yeah. And, you know, if, if, if I thought Biden really had the stomach for that kind of frontal politics against the judiciary, yeah. then I would think just put every, put everything in the, in the emergency and, and see what happens. Since I don't think he is likely to be that pugilistic, um, he's no LBJ. Let's just yeah, right. He's, he's just not. <laughs> yeah. He's just, you know, like you know, yeah. He's not going to threaten to pack the courts over this. Probably. Then I think that there's a case for him just putting into the package, you know, as many popular ideas as he can come up with, and then you know, run on enacting the stuff that Manchin killed. If Democrats can keep their majorities in mm. 2023, that's. Since since that's I think the 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 landscape that we actually inhabit and that we're kind of talking about what's very likely a dead letter anyway, mm-hmm. you know I think that the harm in putting things in the climate emergency that that might be regressive in impact or the risk at least is diminished because most likely this is just going to end up being a fight with the courts and a fight over the midterms. Right. Yeah. Two things. I really hope he does not run again. Um, and two, um, I just I really wish that the party that claims to believe in science would act like they believed in science and that the Democratic climate policy was dominated more by the IPCC than the Republican Party. Yes. <laughs> it drives me insane that they're like, we can't do X because, well, the science says if you don't do it, you're going to die, girl. And you're going to kill all of us. So yeah. fuck them. Do yeah. what needs to be done. Positively Dreadful is brought to you by AG1. I started taking AG1 kind of as an experiment. So TMI about me, I had been doing intermittent fasting for many, many months, and eventually, not only did it stop working as a strategy for controlling calories, it also left me feeling metabolically slow and sluggish until lunchtime every day. So I was already a breakfast skipper, but now I start the day with coffee and AG1, and it helps me coast through the morning. It doesn't taste like some bitter health supplement. It has a kind of mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to when I wake up. So what is this stuff? Well, one delicious scoop of AG1 has 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, and focus. It costs you less than $3 a day, which is cheaper than your cold brew habit, and a subtler benefit is that it's an easy habit to make on behalf of your own health. 
It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day, and that's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash dreadful. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash dreadful to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. A little birdie told me you guys want to talk about the uh, sort of Biden, uh, will he or should he run for election in 2024 thing. He shouldn't. Um, uh, no. Okay, so, so um, <laughs> I want, I, I'm curious what both of your thoughts are on that and what, and what the implications of his decision to run or not run would have on the climate fight. Okay, so mm. as a black woman from the South, I was definitely raised to respect my elders. So I want to stay very <laughs> far. Well, no, seriously, I want to stay very far away from ageism. Um, I think that our elders are often pushed out of society when they still have so much to contribute and don't get the respect that they deserve. So I want to be very clear with what I say about that. However, uh, Joe Biden has not met this moment, um, yeah. regardless of his age. He has not lived up to the stakes of this crisis and appears to be governing as though it is the 1980s or the 1990s when we still mm -hmm. had time to wait on a lot of these crises from democracy to the climate crisis. Um, and he's not shown the fight for this. Um, he's yeah. not shown the stomach for this. So I, and also the deal when we elected him, as I remember, and you guys can tell me if I'm not remembering this right, was that he was the elder statesman and he had, he knew how the Senate worked because he'd been in government for so long. You know, he, he knew how to do the job and he knew how to pull the switches that we needed to pull for these dire crises. I also could have swore remembered it being pretty clear that he was not meant to run again. Um, right. And so if, Right. So if he's told us, and I definitely got the message that he was not going to run again. Progressives are at this point where it's like, I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. So if he's, mm -hmm. he, I feel let down on climate action. I feel let down on student debt. I feel let down on so many things. And so if he's still going to let me down on, and like go back on his word about whether or not to run, it's like, I don't know how well people are going to trust this. Yeah. What I would love to see happen, and you know, I'm probably... Hi, right now. I'm not. I'm not. I swear. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but what I would love to see happen is Biden sort of gracefully step down and throw his weight behind someone who is up to the task. Like, you can't fight fascism and climate disaster if you are, if you think fighting is uncouth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You know what it's I mean? Rude, like, I mean rude. It's rude. I'm like, we need someone who is not afraid of being perceived as, you know, rude or bullying or whatever. Like, this is the time to be a fucking asshole. Be an asshole for the for the world. And uh, <laughs> and, and and Joe just is not that guy. He's not that guy. He's decent. Um, yes. I recall the one term stuff being Sort of like a an anonymous trial balloon from out of his campaign. Oh, really? He never. He, yeah, he never. He never like promised. Like he did promise the student loan thing, and like you yeah. know, a promise Employment. is a promise. And I think if he doesn't follow through, it's like 
he's he, whatever political problems he thinks forgiving student debt is going to cause him like breaking a campaign promise is really bad politics. So that's actually sort of why I think he's going to do something on it. Um, just because yeah. like, it's really hard to make a clear promise and then just whiff on it all together. Do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I agree with you guys about, you know, the importance of how f- confrontational the leader of a party is willing to be with the other party and with corporate interests and the courts and everything else. Right. Like, Mm-hmm. Back in 2019, I wrote two or three or four pieces um, when Joe Biden got into the primary about how his theory of governing just couldn't work in an era where Republicans have become this sort of rule or ruin party. Um, right. And that and the Democrats needed to begin, and they probably should have begun years ago, but then at, at the latest should have begun or reorganizing um, the whole party around sort of like what it means to be a Democrat that – yeah. Essentially, like whatever your the the partisan lean of your state, the fact that you you need to get some Republican voters to win, et cetera, et cetera. Like we have to become comfortable with the idea of governing in a partisan way because Republicans are not going to be partners in solving problems while we're in charge. Right? They're going to want those problems right. to get worse, and we can't deal with that. That's not a good faith partner, right? And I still think all that's true. But, you know, I think you also have to hold that up against the ideal worst plausible case, which is Republicans taking back over the government when they're in this fascist uh, mood. Yeah, (laughs) fascist mood, right? Uh, So, like, if if Biden had some health-related issue where he, like, just couldn't run, you know, then I think that 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 is a a way for him to to step aside without – Sort of clearing the path for Republicans to just waltz in and, and take power again. Mm. But if the, but if but if if he essentially says, "Well, I I blew it. I had I had my shot, and um, I failed, and so I'm not even going to bother to run for re-election again." And and you know, some new generation Democrat uh, should get the nomination instead of me. Quick you know, question. I, yeah. Who's going to question an 80-year-old man about why he's not running for the most stressful job on the planet? Who's going to well, ask Repu- that question? I mean, I, well, you know, this, <laughs> this, the, 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 the same media that blamed him for the gas prices, right? And obviously, like, Republicans right. aren't going to be generous and say, oh, he's just retiring because he's he's too old. Um, they're going to say whatever. Or, even if he does like, say, I got a health problem, they're going to say whatever. But I do think it matters that like the terms under which he would abscond, right? Um, like mm-hmm. if he's gonna, if he's gonna, if he's going to absent himself from politics, and he does it in a way that's essentially admitting that that he his made a mess, he's doing, not gonna clean up. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't know how, and like, and like this whole generation yeah. of Democratic leaders doesn't know what they're doing. Like they don't know how to govern in a world where Republicans won't allow them to. Like mm-hmm. that's just going to get framed and not just by Republicans is like, why would you want four more years of leadership that even Democrats now admit has failed? Right, right. And like, you know, even if he does do that, you have to put every egg in the basket of the person coming up behind him is going to be much better. Uh, and I I don't right. think that's clear at all, right? Like, there's no nominee in waiting who will fundamentally remake the party and the people who were sort of runners up in the last primary, I don't think had much better ideas about how to 
how to succeed in governing under these circumstances. Um, so I think for, like where I come down and I, I only really thought about how I would answer this question. Cause I, I, I got wind that you guys wanted to talk about it. And I think it's a, it's like an important <laughs> topic and like Democrats really need to think about it. I absolutely think Democrats can, if you know, whether they keep either house or the Senate or not, they can, they can get new congressional leadership, right? Like these are all, these are all politicians of the same generation. And I think it's no coincidence that they all approach politics in this fundamentally similar way. Those, mm-hmm. like those leaders can be replaced without, um, without it like f- overturning the game board in some way. And then, you know, the, the rest of it is just sort of like more and more pressure, even by just talking about the idea that he should resign <laughs> or, or not run for election in the hope that he can be chastened um, and then stop proceeding as if the answer to rising fascism and extremism in the GOP is to just be as grandfatherly as possible all the time. Right. <laughs> right. Like, I, I know that that's not Maybe like a, a satis- nice lunch. A nice lunch. <laughs> I know that's not um, like yeah. quite as satisfying as like throw the bums out and uh, and and like let's let's replace the Democratic leadership with people who really get it, like, and hope that the, you know, the four years of the actual Biden presidency didn't make it impossible for them to win. But I think that if you, if you Mm. do something quite as momentous as like a four-year president just chooses not to run again, like it, there aren't that many examples of it in history. And like the one I can think of off the top of my head sitting here is LBJ and, you know, that that gave us Nixon and it wasn't awesome. (laughs) Didn't Carter do the same? Carter lost. Um, yeah. yeah. Carter lost and George H.W. Bush lost. And uh, in both cases, you know, the other party uh, stood to gain a lot. So yeah. you think that Biden is the best bet for the Democrats to win the next uh, election cycle? I mean, I think that there are are circumstances under which a different nominee could emerge that would not be terrible. And I, like it couldn't but it couldn't be that Biden is like. I'm super unpopular and I don't really know what to do from here and I'm old and so I'm going to step aside. I think if mm-hmm. if it happens that way. What if he said it was always the plan? You know, because like what politicians say in public and what is like the actual reason they're stepping down are not always the same thing. I don't, I mean, I don't know. Like I don't think it was the plan and I don't think people are going to mm-hmm. credit him on that. Like, you know, he he is gearing up to run again, I think. Um, and I, I, you know, I think that almost un- under almost any imaginable circumstance where he makes the announcement that he won't be the candidate in 2024, it's going to be under a set of circumstances that makes it pretty clear to everyone that he's throwing in the towel. And that would be mm. really bad. I mean, like whoever got the nomination after that might be an, a super inspiring leader, but they would be running in an environment of basically acknowledged failure from their own party and they would have to be like they would have to make such a such a pristine case for like look, give give us another look because we're under new management and you know that's a huge gamble to take like I'd be scared I'd be real scared yeah yeah that makes sense I guess there's just not I, I don't know I feel like there are so many institutional blocks to to um, fixing this crisis from a government yeah. perspective right now. Not just the climate crisis, but I think also 
you know, these this like layer cake of crises with, you know, sort of the the crisis of democracy, the um, inflation, but also like, you know, kind of rising wealth inequality across the board and just all of it. I feel like it's. Yeah, it's the 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 effort, the um the kind of being at the the part where the ju- the long standing judicial strategy starts to really kick in is not great. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um so so yeah, I just I think um in general no matter what happens with Biden, I feel like Democrats need to really like wake up and realize that they're they're operating in a very different world. Um, yeah. Not because because you're right. It's not just Biden. I mean, I think Pelosi, Schumer, they all are in a freaking time warp. Yeah, you know. So I think yeah, a lot of young voters would be re-energized by a new candidate um, who actually mm. spoke their language. I, I find it very difficult to see Biden pulling young voters again. And that was a huge contingency to help to get him elected or climate voters. Like, I, I, I find it hard yeah. to see them coming back out to, again, which is why I find uh, his candidacy in 2024 to be a difficult pill to swallow. And, like, it scares yeah. me a lot more than a newcomer I, coming mm. out and being like, actually, we didn't live up to our promises. So here's what I'm going to do differently. I, I think there's a lot of disaffected people who didn't vote for Biden in the first place, who probably who are too far to the left to have voted for Biden in the first place. And then there are people who like really sucked it up to vote for him and are now just like completely disaffected and feeling like, well, why did I even do this? You know? Mm -hmm. So those are the people he needs to get back. It's clear as can be in the, in the polling data that Biden is suffering these sort of historically low favorability numbers, low approval numbers, because the youth turned on him, right? Like, yeah, all, everyone in, in politics will be like, it's gas prices, it's this, it's that. Mm-hmm. And But if you look at the numbers, like it's young people. They went from being his strongest constituency to he's underwater with them. Like, Yeah, because, because they didn't turn on him. He failed them. Yes. That's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if you just look at the raw number, I don't think that this is actually – like the case, uh, you know, it doesn't capture people's true hearts. But he's doing worse with young voters than Trump was um, mm. at this point in his presidency. And, you know, that – I think that there's a lot of reasons for that, many of which we've already talked about. But um, but it's it's so clear in the data that I do think that it's possible, even likely, that at some point the, the people around him are going to be like, getting your numbers back up is really – like the quickest way to do it is to go from being like negative 50 with young people to just being like negative 20 or something like that, which is not like, it's like aiming super low, but it would buoy his overall approval ratings a lot. And like the, the picture for him would look rosier, you know, to do that, he would have to deliver in, in a certain way. So it would Mm -hmm. make young people feel better about what they've done. And you could imagine a sort of, uh, sort of positive feedback loop uh, where the sort of policy picture and the governing picture just starts to look better and and um, thus the like you know political outlook doesn't seem so bleak. Um, I don't think that that's outside the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. And you know, in a way, I think that it kind kind of has to happen, or you know, we're just in in a terrible spot because like the you know, if you think about 
all this stuff is like a windows closing, but it's still not quite closed. Yeah. You know, Democrats have to have to do something on climate, either legislatively or or Biden's got to do the emergency uh, on climate before the midterms. And then they've got to, you know, do better than we all expect them to do during the midterms and then take another crack at it. Um, and like, I know that doesn't sound likely, like it almost mm-hmm. sounds maybe like delusionally unlikely, uh, but it's not like, I don't think like crazy out of the question. And as long as that like, you know, sliver of hope still exists. And I think it's something that Democrats and the, like, you know, young people feeling fatalistic about the climate should run towards because the alternative is much worse. Totally. I I honestly think Democrats should absolutely hammer on the fact that given the judicial situation, the only short-term option is to grow power in the, in the federal government. That's the only thing that is going to work in the short term to actually get any of these things done, unfortunately, right? Like, th- that's the reality that we're living in right now. And and I think that – I really think Democrats should, should A, yeah, do something that shows that they're going to actually, like, follow through on all of these things they talk about. And B, hammer home that, like, you know – the only fix is right now, the only short-term fix, and we are on a limited timeline, is to get more Democrats into office and expand control of the federal government. More actual Democrats who actually believe in climate change. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Because there's no way in the world Joe Manchin believes in climate change and is acting nope. like this. It isn't, it, like, yeah. no, you don't know what's coming or you don't believe no. what's coming. No, because how easy would it be for him to just say yes to a fucking spending only bill? Like, that's insane. That's that is like it's so beyond the realm of even smart politics that it's like he lives on a yacht. He's just like the water's going to rise. <laughs> yeah, and yachts that's are like, on water. Yeah, more more. That's like more terrain. More real estate for him. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, seriously. Like, I don't I don't get it. Yeah. Like, how does he? Yeah. There's no way in the world to understand even the very basics about climate change and behave the way that he's behaving. Like, there's, I think he it's must just think possible. that it's like so far out and that there will be some magical technology fix. And that if you think the that impacts you, have been overstated and, you know. If you think that you are not fit to govern, like that is that is absurd at this point. But the other thing I was thinking about what you were saying about uh, Joe Biden potentially getting his his numbers back up is. So one of the things that is perpetually frustrating about him when it comes to climate change is that his words don't match his actions. We've already talked about that. But I would also like to mention that I don't, I don't think even his rhetoric rises to the moment. So. Uh, Mm. This is a president who often gets credit for, you know, being very comforting to people when they are in distress. But when it comes to climate change, he's incredibly dismissive. Mm. Whenever asked about his climate bona fides, when he was on the campaign trail, he was extremely dismissive about Mm. any questions about what he was or was not doing on climate change. And I think, (laughs) you know, especially young voters uh, fighting for climate action, they are in extreme distress. They're watching their future light up in flames in front of them and the whole Mm -hmm. world saying, sucks to you to you, kid. Like, that is terrible. So I was yeah. I listened to his speech last week, and he said what a lot of the, uh, you know, previous generations of Democrats have said. When I think of climate change, I think of jobs. What I want him to think of is suffering. 
This is not an economic opportunity. Climate change is not a chance to boost capitalism. Capitalism caused climate change. So you're going at it the wrong way. And also, that is extremely dismissive of all the people who have died from climate disasters, all the people who have had their livelihoods uprooted, had to leave their homes. It's so much suffering that is happening in this world for you to say that this is about jobs. Yeah. As long as I've followed this issue, right, Democrats have been looking for some sort of like norm core way to talk about climate that won't offend the sensibilities of, you know, the hypothetical median voter, right? So it's jobs or it's national security. And, and like, honestly, I, you know, that's what politicians have to do, right? They have to go sell their policies. But I, I do think that it's interesting to imagine what Joe Biden's how how young people would think of Joe Biden if in addition to directing you know whatever rhetorical power he has towards the median voter and their concerns about jobs or national security or whatever else he spent some time talking about like just like i understand why young people are in a state of like great distress about what the world they're going to inherit is going to look like and, yeah. you know, I, I like and, and made, made it clear to them that even though he's nearing the end of his life, he's not giving short shrift to the world he's going to live behind. If if even just like sounding that note would help persuade people that he was doing all he knew how to do or all that was in his power to do. Well, and that he's that he actually genuinely takes it seriously, like the 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 right. The jobs and and sort of market based solutions rhetoric is honestly it's it's a fossil fuel framing of the problem. Mm. <laughs> like it it literally comes from the fossil fuel industry. So like while I get that the median um, voter might not understand that, I think it's also sort of incumbent upon politicians as leaders to educate people and not exactly. just pander to. You know, like to this framework that is, it's not real. Like, exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. they don't like, do that with like healthcare. They're, they're exactly. Like, the reality is, uh, well, actually, I don't know. They're kind of doing it on monkeypox right now, right? Oh, I mean, the God. reality is, like, there is a fucking crisis headed your way. It is already, like, it's already impacting people. And pretending that that's not the case doesn't it it doesn't actually change it, and it doesn't. I also just feel like you know voters can tell when they're just being messaged to, and mm-hmm. you know, like voters I don't are think smart. Anyone, they're just busy. I don't, I don't think anyone <laughs> believes that climate policy is actually about creating fucking solar manufacturing jobs. You know what I mean? Like, just say what it really is. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I I imagine that what inspires politicians and their consultants and their aides to come up with immediate term justifications for climate policy, like jobs, for instance, is a suspicion that if you appeal to people about a future that is 10 or 20 or 40 or 100 years off, Mm -hmm. and we need to do this because it's going to be really bad then... They're gonna. They're they're mutually exclusive, though. Well, so that's what I was gonna say. That's what I was gonna say. Is 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 that for me? Fine, do that. But also, like between now and one point five degrees Celsius, or one point six or two, like people will just be healthier. 
you know? Yeah. Irrespective I mean, of famines and dis- other disruptions and, and migration and uh, all the other problems that we expect the climate change has already caused is like the people who are alive right now will live longer uh, and healthier lives if we have cleaner yeah. energy. Like that's, right. there, I, I there's would... something, there's something that uh, that's a benefit for everyone that will start piling up as soon as you, you know, start taking emissions reduction seriously. And, you know, there you have a sales point that isn't really about asking people to imagine how bad the future might be and like, and like hoping for them to vote in the best interests of their grandchildren. I think it's also climate change is not in the future. Climate change is is in the present, and at this point, it's in the past. And we do this really interesting thing where we talk about uh, climate change as though, you know, it's in the future, and we talk about COVID as though it's in the past. <laughs> A very smart woman tweeted about that, who was not me. Um, <laughs> but we have to get out of that framework. And like Amy was saying, it is the responsibility of these of our leaders, of our elected leaders, to signal what is and is not important and to educate and bring their constituents along long if it's a real crisis and they don't actually understand it. Okay, well, Democrats have been talking about climate change as a job fair since at least the 90s. And like we've had decades to, to actually <laughs> get people true. on board with this. So our, like, I have, true. we have serious issues with the media and our elected officials for not doing their part as public messengers. Like there's a reason yeah. that the public is so in the dark about climate change. Like that's not an accident. Amy knows mm-hmm. everything there is to know about that, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, not, yeah, to me knowing everything. Of course, I do not. Um, <laughs> that's a shit time. Yeah, she's that's right. A shit time. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, no, I mean, I do. I, I, I think that, like, yeah, again, I just, I would love to see Democrats stop just reacting to industry and or Republican framing on these issues and actually, I mean, I think this is like what you were talking about before too, Brian, about like how like they need to start talking about what Democrats actually stand for. Like what is, what is the democratic approach to climate policy irrespective of the Republican concerns about it? You know what I mean? Like I, you know, and, and I don't, I don't think that means they need to stop talking about jobs. That's of course a part of it. But I just feel like, I don't know, I think even, you know, like I'll use my mother as an example. She's a very moderate Democrat, very like she loves Joe Biden. She's like, he's so he's such a nice man, you know, Mm -hmm. but she's even like, man, this um, this this weather is weird. Things are getting really weird and it's scaring me. Yeah. You know, so like tap into that. People are starting to notice and freak out. And I think saying, hey, we have we actually have a solution for that. Yeah. That rhetoric about climate change being in the future can lose a lot of voters who have just suffered from yeah. a climate mm-hmm. disaster. Um, yeah. So, yeah, because that, that feels real insulting if you live through a wildfire and people are like, yeah, your children and grandchildren. We are like, well, that's cool because I just lost my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Sorry to whoever that person is. <laughs> the, They're uh, out there. Yeah, the, uh, no, for sure. You know, the, I think that if people are getting testy about, about how Joe Biden talks about climate change, I think it's because, it's got to be because of the absence of the other half of the rhetoric that, that uh, people who care about the issue want to hear, right? Like, like the Green New Deal is, 
inspired by FDR. It's it's not just about getting emissions down. It is about jobs. It is about rebuilding communities. Um, and so it's not like, you know, the progressives in Congress who take the issue most seriously or are most concerned about it are opposed to trying to sell it in terms of, you know, what it can do for for people's economic circumstances mm-hmm. in addition to every other possible way. What I don't really understand is why um, in the, okay, fine, let's talk about about it in an economic sense. Why mm-hmm. is there never any emphasis on how fucked we are economically mm-hmm. if we don't deal with this issue? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, okay, yep. you want to talk about job losses? Like, yeah. you, you know, work when you're you dead. Wanna, or you want to talk about how expensive food is going to get? Let's talk about the 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 rising cost of living that inaction contributes to. Yeah, you know, okay, so here's my here's my new idea that I just came up with right now. It's it's like you know how when Republicans get into power and they're like do the only thing they know how to do which is cut rich people's taxes. They sort of yeah. invent a whole new economics and they're like this is going to like actually reduce deficits because it's going to create right. so many jobs and there's going to be and it's you know it's, <laughs> right. it's it's like funny math and but the idea is just basically like let's create a counter narrative to what you know like qualified economists will say about these tax cuts say it'll mm-hmm. be great for everyone and then just charge ahead is that right democrats could and it would be much more honest do economic forecasting where the they use a baseline of like how much the climate is expected to change given the emissions trajectory that we're on and yes. then and then and then talk about the economic impacts of their climate proposals not based on how like the congressional budget office scores them but on right. a credible model of how much economic damage will be done by doing nothing and then say correct yeah i mean that's like like okay, so the way that OMP does it, it's it's insane. The economic models that are currently used to figure out how much climate policy costs leave out the impact of fucking climate change, and that is a model that was created, by the way, by economists who were on the payroll of fucking oil companies and the American Petroleum Institute. The 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 models that the government uses are not like good, accurate, realistic models of how the economy will actually work if if nothing is done and, and that's not a that's not an accurate model it's inaccurate yeah you know. told you she knew everything <laughs> <laughs> all right so so here's what i got so so we 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 have here over the last hour or so come up with like better ways for democrats to model the economic and other impacts of their climate plans We've models that already exist too, by models the way. Models that they already exist and, like, that, and that are yes. defensible. And they're not just like they're not yes. just like propaganda uh like that, you know, billionaires cooked up to justify their own tax cuts. Uh right. we've talked about better ways for Joe Biden to just like communicate, particularly with younger voters, about climate as something that is already having serious negative impacts on their lives, using that sort of empathy mode he likes to go into. We've, Mm -hmm. we've like talked about like how, you know, he could still do some good with declaring a climate emergency now if somehow Democrats keep 
the House and like add a senator, they can maybe pass the climate spending thing. And that's all before we get to the question of whether he'll run again. So I feel like there's like things that can like we, you know, in a conversation that was <laughs> like bleak at points, like we like there's like <laughs> yeah. there's like stuff to work with, like real that, that yes. could like really tangibly improve you know, the circumstances under which we're having the conversation. Uh, and that's yeah. all before we get to, yeah, the, like, will he run again thing. And if he, whether he does or doesn't, I feel like we should, like, reconvene when the decision's made and and evaluate what sort of happened in the ensuing few months. In the interim. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I love it. How does that sound? Sounds great. I like it. Okay, cool. <laughs> all right, well, then I'm going to leave it there. But everyone should listen to Hot Take, Crooked Media's climate podcast hosted by my guest today Mariana East Hegler and Amy Westervelt. Thank you guys so much for for joining me today. Thank Thanks you. for having us. So as I mentioned at the top, kind of a lot has changed since we recorded this. There's still obviously many steps between now and a signing ceremony for the Inflation Reduction Act. But assuming it passes, we can probably safely assume that Biden won't be declaring a national climate emergency, and he won't have to reckon with the trade-offs that we discussed in the conversation. And that would be great news for many reasons, including just raw political ones, like showing signs of life out of this Democratic majority right before the midterms, especially when all this talk about Biden maybe not running for a second term is swirling in the air. It happened kind of just in the nick of time. It also validates the ethic I try to bring to the show and live by, which isn't exactly never say die, but to look at every path between here and things that have to happen and keep pressing ahead so long as any of them are still open. And that includes paths to environmental sustainability, but it's so many other things too. If things work out as it looks like they will, it probably means Biden's climate actions will be insulated from the judiciary. But the judiciary is still a big problem for anyone who wants to live in a country with clean air and water and democratic elections and robust checks on big business. And the only way Dems will be able to push back against an out-of-control court is with more power in the other branches. And that's true whether the plan is to codify the climate emergency or pass the climate spending or add more seats to the court or anything else. As Mary and Amy and I were talking, I started ruminating about what it is Biden might want voters to know about his climate agenda before the midterms, beyond sort of sanding down his rhetoric to be more empathetic towards rightly scared young voters. And I think it's that, right? He could tell the people counting on him not just to celebrate this big step in the right direction, but that he needs their support going forward if his climate agenda is going to survive. A little honesty about the predicament we're all in might be the best policy. Positively Dreadful is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producer is Michael Martinez. And our associate producer is Olivia Martinez. Veronica Simonetti mixes and edits the show each week. Our theme music is by Vasily Fotopoulos. Fotopoulos.